0: Good morning, very warm welcome, great to see you, very warm welcome also to those joining us uh, on live stream this morning. Well we're in week six in our series Mark My Words, we're working our way through the the gospel of Mark. Uh, Last week was uh, chapter five, surprise, surprise, and in chapter five we were introduced to uh, three people. Each of these uh, folk were desperate in their own way. And I just want to recap for a few moments, um, because these stories that we had a look at last week do have a bearing on where we are headed uh, this morning as well. First of all, Dan introduced us last week to the the demonised man. At some time during his past, he'd just allowed the door open to uh, demonic voices, uh, demonic forces, should I say. Uh, There's a terrible echo here. Can you just bring it down just a touch? Thank you. And his was as bad a case of demonization as you could ever imagine. And when Jesus asked the man his name, the spirits answered on the man's behalf and said, Legion, for we are many. And as Dan said last week, very creepy. But over the years, on a number of occasions, I've encountered people who are demonized. uh, as a pastor, part and parcel of the, of, of the job description, I suppose, um, I've come across people who are demonised, who um, uh, were occasionally taken over by, the, by a voice which was mocking and cursing and uh, attempting to I- intimidate. Now, this isn't something that I speak about very often at all. And I can imagine that if you've never encountered anything like this, it could be a a little bit intimidating, if not far-fetched, a bit weird perhaps. But in over three decades of church ministry, although I've encountered demonised people from time to time, only once I would say that I have encountered anything anywhere near uh, what this man was that we came across last week. And that was 14 years ago. Some of you were around in the church at that time. Uh, Over a period of a month, we witnessed a Satanist who were actually possessed by over 600 uh, demons, evil spirits. And each of them named themselves as they departed. It was all very tedious. You know, it might sound very exciting in the fast lane of uh, Christian faith, but it was incredibly, incredibly tedious in order to see that. Our church in those days was very much like a war zone. And I remember coming home to Julie and talking about the stuff that I had witnessed firsthand, which was just simply off the scale weird. And Julie made me promise not to tell anybody about it, because she said, they will think that you're absolutely bonkers. They'll think that you're nuts if you start talking about these sorts of things. So, I'm stopping there. But Mark tells us that with this man, these evil spirits replied to Jesus, that their name was Legion because there are many. A Roman Legion was around about 5,000 soldiers. And this man was chained, he was chained literally. The chain stopped him from hurting himself and hurting others. But he was also chained spiritually, and Jesus set him free. With the demons being cast into 2,000 pigs that then run into a lake and were drowned. It's a most unusual story. And as I read that story again this week, I noticed that Mark doesn't tell us about the cost to the pig farmer or to the local economy. And I reckon that in today's economy, that would have cost in the region of 400,000 pounds. Where do I get that figure from? It's very simple, really. I just looked up the price of a hog roast on the internet (laughs) and then times it by 2,000 and that's the figure I came out with. But seriously, there is a point to that. If nothing else, that figure demonstrates how much one soul is worth to God. Then Dan introduced us to a second person. The second person was a woman who had suffered from a condition that caused her to bleed. And uh, she'd had this condition for 12 years. Doctors couldn't help her. In fact, Mark tells us that she suffered a great deal at the hands of many doctors. There's almost a suggestion there that doctors made things worse for her. But like the demonised man, this woman was in a desperate situation. She was a social outcast. Uh, As the Jewish law said that she couldn't visit a synagogue, neither could she have social contact with anyone else. She couldn't get married. She was regarded as ceremonially unclean. Truthfully, she shouldn't have even been in the crowd where she encountered Jesus because everybody that she touched in that crowd was also to become unclean. And yet, as the story went on, in faith she reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' robe and at that moment she became well. Jesus stopped and called her out from the crowd and said to her very tenderly, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed of your suffering. The third person that we came across last week was a man called Jairus. Jairus was a synagogue ruler whose daughter was dying. He was so desperate that he threw himself at Jesus' feet, begged Jesus to do something. He didn't worry too much about etiquette or decorum. He was desperate. And desperate people act desperately. He fell at Jesus' feet. Jesus agreed to go with him, but then Jesus was delayed in his encounter with this woman who touched the uh, hem of his robe. News came to Jairus that his daughter had died, but Jesus was unperturbed by the news. He told the mourners that she was not dead, but in fact she was asleep. They ridiculed him because they knew a dead person when they saw one. Jesus took Peter, James and John, Mr and Mrs Jairus with him. He touched the dead girl by the hand and said, Talitha Kaoom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And she did, some story. Amazing miracles, three desperate people, all (coughs) social outcasts in their own way, the demonized, the diseased and the dead. And yet the thing that they all had in common was that they all encountered Jesus, the one who had authority over demons and disease and death, as very much we've been singing in some of our songs this morning. And Mark wanted his original readers, and indeed readers of his gospel down through the ages, and us here this morning, to know that we have entrusted our lives to the one who has authority, He has authority over all the circumstances of our lives. He wants you this morning to know that he's in control. He's in charge. And that our lives are not in the hands of fate, they're not in the lap of the gods. But our lives are entrusted to the hands of Christ. That's the intro. We haven't got on to chapter 6 yet. (coughs) Let's move on to chapter 6. In chapter 6, there are five narratives. If you've got your Bibles, I do encourage you, I know that we put verses up on screen, but I do encourage you to bring your Bibles and a notepad as well to uh, church on a Sunday morning. In this chapter, we have five narratives. And to tell you the truth, I've been scratching my head, puzzling all week. I must have read this chapter maybe a dozen times this week. I can almost recite it to you. Wondering what on earth these five rather diverse, stories have in common. (laughs) Firstly, Jesus not being honoured in his hometown of Nazareth. Secondly, Jesus sending out his disciples two by two. And then we come across the story of the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod. And then fourthly, the feeding of the 5,000. And then finally, Jesus walking on water and uh, as I say, I've read through this many times this week and I think that there is a theme. Uh, Perhaps it's not obvious at first reading and the theme is responses to Jesus. So let's read the first six verses of this uh, chapter and see where we go with this. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. What an incredibly sad story. We've just been told in the previous chapter that the leader of a synagogue and an outcast woman and even the demons had a more accurate appreciation of Jesus than those people from his hometown. Those people perhaps who should have known them best. Isn't this the carpenter? That wasn't a compliment by the way. They were just simply pointing out that Jesus had no formal theological training. He had not been a disciple of any rabbi, and much less had he been a rabbi himself. Isn't this Mary's son? Again, this was not a compliment. In Jewish society, a man was always described as the son of his father, even if his mother was a widow. Isn't this Mary's son? Was meant to be an insult to him. There might have even been rumours circulating about the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? Jesus had been in Nazareth growing up there from childhood for a long time to the age of about 30. He was known in that town. He grew up amongst them. But then Mark writes, and they took offense at him. Now the word that Mark uses in the Greek, which uh, is New Testament uh, language, which um, uh, Mark uses here in his gospel, is the word scandalizo from which we get our English word scandal, or scandalized. So these people in his hometown were absolutely scandalized by Jesus. They were totally offended by him. But why offended? Well, Mark doesn't actually provide us with too many details. If you go into Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us more than Mark does about this. Luke tells us that Jesus made a visit to Nazareth. We're not entirely sure whether it was on this occasion or on a previous occasion because sometimes the Gospel writers, um, they they aren't always chronological in what they uh, share with us. But Luke tells us of Jesus going to Nazareth and on the Sabbath he read from a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It's a well-known passage to all of us taken from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 where Jesus read these words, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus rolled up the scroll and sat down. And then Luke says, The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But what did he mean? Who was Isaiah prophesying about? And then Jesus says that this passage, this passage written many centuries be- before by Isaiah, was all about himself. Luke tells us in his gospel that everybody spoke well of Jesus in Nazareth. <coughs> at least they did so at first. After their initial response, they started asking questions. Isn't this Joseph's son? I think it was a little bit politer than asking, is this Mary's son? but there was still a sting in those words. Basically what they were saying to Jesus is, Jesus, who do you think you are? We've heard about this name that you're making for yourself. We've heard about the miracles that you're performing in other towns and cities. But around here, you're still that kid that we knew, you're still Jesus. And as we all know, and it's a a phrase that we often use, familiarity can breed contempt. Jesus then told them that no prophet is accepted in his own town. Now if Jesus had stopped at that point, things might have been okay for him. But Jesus didn't stop there, and you can look at this in Luke chapter 4. Jesus then went on to say and remind them of two Old Testament stories. The first was about the prophet Elijah, who in years of famine at that time in Israel, wasn't sent to a widow in Israel to perform a miracle for her, but he went to a despised Gentile, the widow of Zarephath. And then Jesus told a second story. He told a story about there being many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. But Elisha didn't heal any of those from Israel. He healed a leper named Naaman from Syria. And the point that Jesus was making by this is that God chose to work where he witnessed faith, not according to geography, not according to national boundaries, but wherever he saw faith, he acted. Now, the people that heard this, these people of Nazareth that we're reading about from Jesus' hometown, were absolutely furious and they drove Jesus out of town. (coughs) Now, Mark doesn't tell us those stories that Luke tells us in his Gospel. Mark just tells us that the people were offended by Jesus, that he, that he was uh, a scandal to them. But Mark does tell us something that Luke doesn't tell us. And he says that he, Jesus, could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I don't know about you, I smiled when I read that actually. If I saw just a few people sick people being healed when I prayed for them, I would call it a result. (laughs) But Mark doesn't. He could only do, uh, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And then Mark continues by saying that he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now I question for a moment, what does Mark mean by saying this? Was he saying that Jesus was unable to heal was he saying that Jesus was utterly reliant on their faith in order to do a miracle was he saying that Jesus um, was totally disarmed deactivated his power because people didn't have faith well I don't believe that that was being said you see it wasn't that Jesus did not have the power to perform the miracles at Nazareth rather He chose not to in such a a climate of unbelief. Jesus often worked where there was no belief, no faith, but not where there was unbelief. Now that might sound, you know, what are you talking about there, Steve? What What do I mean by that? There are a number of occasions when Jesus healed, when Jesus performed a miracle, where there was no recorded faith, for example, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus just went into the room where she was. He took her by the hand and the fever left her. There's no mention of faith with the man with the shrivelled hand. Jesus just told him to stand and and reach out. Lazarus didn't have faith to be raised from the dead. He was dead. It appears that Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, didn't have faith either for their brother. The demon-possessed man didn't have the belief that Jesus could set him free. Jesus just set him free. So Jesus often performed miracles where there was no belief, but not where there was unbelief. Think about that. Jesus often performed miracles where there was no belief, but not where there was unbelief. And that's what he was experiencing in his hometown it wasn't the case of lack of faith or doubt or, rege- uh, um, or anything like that, but it was a rejection. It was a determination to oppose him and even a desire to kill him. Mark then goes on to tell us in verse 6 that he, Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. The King James Version of the Bible says that he marveled at their unbelief. There's only two instances in the Gospels where we are told that Jesus uh, was amazed. This occasion and the other occasion is when Jesus um, healed the servant of a Roman centurion. The Roman centurion approached Jesus and asked Jesus to heal his servant. His servant was on the point of death. And then the Roman centurion said to Jesus, I don't expect you to come under my roof. I am not worthy for you to come into my home. I am a man under authority. I say to my soldiers, come, and they come. I tell them, go, and they go. I tell them to do this, and they do it. And Luke writes in his gospel that when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. You see, whilst Jesus is not limited by our faith, For He's God after all. It would be true to say that God often chooses to work amongst us in response to our faith. God loves it when we have faith and trust, when we have a believing heart. And I believe that there are some doors that can only be unlocked by faith. Jesus on a number of occasions in the New Testament said, be it Unto you according to your faith. I think that the whole of our Christian lives can be summarized in that great phrase from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, By grace are you saved through faith. That in the Christian life, everything is by grace through faith. Grace is God's hand giving, faith is man's hand receiving. Everything the whole of our Christian lives is that way around God's grace our faith God's grace is, is gracious hand giving to us faith is us receiving all that God has for us and Jesus was amazed here on just two occasions one because of incredible faith and one because of incredible unbelief I wonder I've asked myself this question even as I was studying this this week. I wonder, would Jesus be amazed at any of us? And if so, would he be amazed at our faith or would he be amazed at our unbelief? Just a thought. Next, Mark tells us that Jesus gave his disciples authority to go from village to village, two by two, to travel light, not to take bread or bag or money or an extra tunic and if anybody should not welcome them or listen to them, then they were to shake the dust off their feet and leave. And That's a really interesting detail, actually, because in Jesus' day, uh, if Jewish people needed to go through a Gentile town or if they had business in a Gentile town, they would come away from there and would literally shake the dust off their feet as they left. It was a, a gesture to say that we don't want to take anything from this Gentile city with us. Jesus was one who was despised and rejected, and he was preparing his followers for the same rejection that they would experience. Some people would accept the message, others would reject it. The next thing that Mark tells us in this um, chapter is about some of the other reactions to Jesus. There was a certain amount of controversy over Jesus' identity. There were some people going around saying that Jesus was a prophet. Some of them said that he was Elijah. Why on earth did they say that he was Elijah? Well, it seems as though the reason for this, that Elijah, according to their own scriptures, was not someone who ever died, but was taken to heaven in a chariot, and therefore they were putting two and two together, making five, and asking whether this new miracle worker around Jesus, if he was Elijah, returned. And then there was King Herod. He believed that Jesus was actually John the Baptist reincarnated. In fact, it seems as though uh, Herod was a bit spooked by Jesus, maybe because it was of a, a guilty conscience that he was responsible for John's murder. And Mark goes into great detail in this chapter, and we're not going to do it this morning, of the sordid details of the murder of John the Baptist. It's a story of incest, a scorned woman, a belly dancer, an old guy with a hot, a macho promise, and it concludes with John's head on a platter. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, do have a read of that uh, this week, but let's just stop there for a moment. Let's just reflect on that story. What do you think that this story of John the Baptist murder will have said to the persecuted believers that Mark was writing to? I think that it would have said What you guys are experiencing, the persecution that you're going through, is not unusual. Even John the Baptist, the one of whom Jesus said there is no one greater than John. He was jailed, he was persecuted, he was martyred, even though he'd done no wrong. And I think that Mark, in his gospel, uses these stories to help the persecuted Christians that he is writing to in Rome to understand that somehow they are not being singled out by God. They're not alone in their trials. Two of the questions which are most often asked by Christians when something bad happens. The first question, you might have done this yourself, the first question when something goes wrong, something really terrible is happening, why God? And the second question is, why me? What have I done to deserve this treatment? And Jesus was teaching his followers pretty much up front that many of them would suffer for being his followers. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7, there's a great passage there at the end of the Beatitudes and Jesus says to his followers, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is a very, very long chapter, 56 verses in this chapter. And I can only barely scratch the surface in the time allotted this morning. So I do encourage you. Go home, prayerfully reflect on these words over the next few days and when you come together again in your life groups this week or perhaps you're meeting with just another friend, Christian believer, so that you can talk about these things. But Mark, let me just uh, very quickly touch on two further stories that Mark includes and then I'll draw things together. First of all, Mark tells us, that Jesus intended to take some rest, but the crowds followed him. Jesus had compassion on them and uh, began teaching them. Uh, it was a remote place. It was getting late in the day. And his disciples said to Jesus, Can you send these people away so that they can go and get something to eat in one of the villages? And Jesus said to them, to the disciples, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? It's really interesting, you know, when we compare some of the gospel accounts of this, because that account is given in the other gospels as well. And in John's gospel, we're told an extra detail, that Jesus actually asked Philip, one of the disciples, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And John adds in his account, he asked this only to test him, for he had already in mind what he was going to do. Stop there for a moment. Jesus asked Philip and I imagine the wider group of disciples, where are we gonna buy bread for these people to eat? Jesus didn't ask that question because he didn't know the answer. Because we are told that he already had in mind what he was going to do. But Jesus' question was designed to stretch their faith. And we know the story very well, don't we? That Jesus got 5,000 men and their their families to sit down in groups, took five loaves, two fish, gave thanks, and then distributed the food to everyone, each eating as much as they required. And then in Mark's Gospel, we get a very interesting detail (coughs) one which is so easily missed, in verse 42. (coughs) Mark writes, they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. Now, that is quite a significant statement, and I'll come back to that in a moment. The next thing that happens was that Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him to the other side of the lake. Jesus stayed on the side of the lake that he was at in order to pray, but from a distance, he could see that the disciples were struggling. And Mark writes in verses 47 and 48 of this chapter, When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Did Jesus respond to their need? Well, yes, he did, in verse 48. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Let's ask some questions of this. The fourth watch of the night was between 3am and 6am. When did Jesus first notice that they were struggling? It was in the evening probably the first watch of the night, between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. So why did Jesus wait so long to come to them when they were struggling such? I think you're asking some great questions this morning, thank you. (laughs) Maybe. Just maybe it was for the same reason why Jesus asked them, how they were to feed the crowd to test them to stretch their faith as someone once said divine delays are not necessarily divine denials Rick Warren says the situations that will stretch your faith most will be those times when life falls apart and God seems nowhere to be found How many of you have experienced some of those times? Yeah? I have. I'm sure you have as well. The situations that will stretch your faith most will be those times when life falls apart and God seems nowhere to be found. And the stretching of our faith, we don't like it. But it's for our strengthening. I saw a great poster the other day. It said... um, in gripping li- uh, letters, stretch marks, and then in smaller print. Trusting God when your faith is tested. It's a song that we sing in this church. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Saviour. Just an aside, by the way, it's quite interesting that uh, Mark, in the way that he writes of this account, and he was collating and editing Peter's sermons and what Peter had passed on to him, but Mark leaves out one aspect of this story of Jesus, of the story of Jesus walking on the water that is included in Matthew's Gospel. Do you know what Mark in this account leaves out of that story? Any of you? You'll kick yourselves, it's it's fairly obvious. At least you've all woken up, thank you. He doesn't tell us about about Peter getting out of the boat and Peter walking on water and Peter then sinking. And maybe Peter, who passed the information on to Mark, didn't want to include this Either because he didn't want to be exalted for walking on the water or he didn't want to be humbled for sinking. I don't know. That's an interesting aside. But there's more. The disciples saw Jesus walking on the water and freaked, as you would. They thought it was a ghost. And then Mark tells us this in verse 50 and 52 Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What on earth do loaves and walking on water have in common? What's the connection here? The answer, I believe, is that these disciples had only just witnessed Jesus' miraculous power the fact that he had fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women plus children on two fish and five loaves. And the disciples had 12 baskets full of food left over that they took on board with them. Just think about that. In this boat, at the disciples' feet, they had the tangible evidence of Jesus' provision and power. Yet, when it came to the next trial... They panicked, they lost courage. They seemed almost to forget everything that Jesus had shown them and taught them. Let's come into land. Guys, if you'd like to come back, that'd be brilliant. I said right at the start that this chapter is all about responses to Jesus. In contrast to the amazing faith of Jairus and the woman in the crowd who trusted in Jesus, the people from his hometown were absolutely scandalized by him. this this carpenter, this Mary's son. (coughs) Mark also tells us that some people who are saying that Jesus was a prophet, maybe Elijah, Herod thought that he was John the Baptist reincarnated. But perhaps the greatest challenge of this chapter is the response of Jesus' disciples to him. A few weeks back in chapter 4, we remember the story of Jesus stilling the storm out on Lake Galilee. And the disciples on that occasion said, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But even now, after witnessing many more miracles, the setting free of a demonised man, the healing of a woman in the crowd, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, the feeding of 5,000, they still didn't really get it or realise was on the boat with them. (coughs) And this morning I'm just asking myself that question, are we on times any different to what they are? Am I any different? You know we thank God in our lives for the amazing ways that he has delivered us or give him thanks for the amazing things that he has done, we give testimony to that effect, and yet when the next trial or challenge comes along, do we again falter in our faith? and question his ability and his faithfulness all over again. In his town of Nazareth, there was a a familiarity that bred contempt. And I think that unbelief can act as a barrier to Jesus working amongst us. And I believe it's possible, even for us, to become over-familiar, over-familiar with Jesus, or maybe over-familiar with our settings, over familiar with the environment, over familiar with the songs that we sing, over familiar with these passages that we know so well ourselves, that we lose sight of the one that we are truly worshiping and serving, that he is with us. I was wondering how to conclude this short talk this morning and I thought of uh, Paul's words, great words in Ephesians chapter one. It's a prayer that he prays for the uh, Ephesian church And I just want to pray these words this morning, not only for myself, but for you too. And uh, maybe we could stand as I read these great words. Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 23. It's a prayer that he prayed for them. I'd like to just pray it for all of us today. This is a prayer. I pray far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What a wonderful prayer that is, isn't it? Can we just uh, sing that song I mentioned earlier? Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you could call me. Take me deeper than my feet would ever wander and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Saviour. Let's respond this morning to our wonderful Lord in this way.